Welcome to the Civil Engineering Podcast, the podcast focused on helping civil engineering professionals succeed by exposing them to interesting civil engineering projects and successful civil engineering professionals around the world. Hosts Anthony Fasano and Christian Knutson had successful but unconventional civil engineering careers and now focus on helping civil engineering professionals achieve their goals in work and life. All right, now it's time for this week's Civil Engineering Conversation, and you're in for a treat. Our guest is Jim Rogers, author of the American Council of Engineering Company's first ever book on the subject of proposal writing titled Win More Work, How to Write Winning AEC Proposals. And as you would expect, he helps companies create superior proposals. However, he doesn't just stop there. He helps them transform their marketing and business development capabilities in order to gain competitive advantage that can last for years. He's a graduate of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill with a BA in economics. And as a former executive with Accenture State and Local Government Practice in New York City, he learned to write winning proposals against competitors such as IBM, Deloitte, and Lockheed Martin. He left that lucrative career to form a software company 11 days prior to the dot-com bust and proudly describes himself as a failed dot-com entrepreneur. He adds that while pitching venture capital firms for investment for a startup, he learned more about writing proposals in one short year than his other 25 years in business combined. He may be the only person in the world to be able to claim that he was in attendance in 1974 when Hank Aaron broke Bay Ruth's record when he hit his 715th home run, and he graduated from college alongside Michael Jordan, who walked into graduation ceremony just a few steps in front of him. And he now lives in the horse capital of the world, Lexington, Kentucky, where he is president of the aptly named consulting firm Unbridled Revenue Incorporated. We'll have links to that, uh, to his website for his company in the show notes. And without further ado, Jim, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Chris. I'm happy to be here. I'm proud and flattered that you read my book and thought that it was worthy to have me come on and have your audience hear what I have to say that might be able to help them stay busy and achieve their their goals, their dreams in their careers and for their families. Absolutely. And and, uh, and Jim's right. I, I, I did read uh, read his book and that that's really how we initially got connected. And I reached out to Jim here a few months ago, and uh, and we've now been able to get the uh, get this podcast put together. And again, in the show notes, I, I'm going to share with you a uh, a book note that that I've put together on Jim's book, but that doesn't even do it anywhere close to the justice. I'll just throw it out there right now. If you are in the proposal development, proposal writing business, if you're a civil engineer who's interested in wanting to learn more about what's involved in proposals, please go out and put your hands on this book. Jim, I'm not getting any kickbacks from you. <laughs> I really honestly think that this is a, a book that's going to help people uh, uh, really get their hand, their heads wrapped around uh, some really good ways to go about, go about doing proposals. So with that, why don't you tell us maybe just a little bit about what you do and how it helps AE firms win more work? Sure. Thanks for that question. The easiest way to describe what I do is to say that I help clients learn to reliably write winning proposals year over year. And what do I mean by that? Part, part of that means that people begin to understand the foundation for what a winning proposal looks like. And I lay this out in the, in the book, really not to teach everything about proposal writing or the mechanics or have the checklist of things that you have to do to be in com- compliance or check things off to make sure that you've covered all the, the technical requirements in a proposal. It's not about that. There are plenty of other books 
if you need one of those kind of primers to help you write your first proposal or as an experienced proposal to make sure you're not leaving anything out, this book is really about your argument, how to structure it, and how to make sure that it's clear and how to make sure that it's compelling and memorable so that you're chosen by the selection committee. And what I like to say with my clients is, look, I, you may very well be teed up to win this project. Let's remove all doubt. And if you're not the front runner for this, but you're close, you know, we can make up that ground with a really stellar proposal. So I don't think that that's the kind of thing that can happen if you're hired as I initially was, let's say three or four years ago as I entered the AE space. You can't do that just by being hired as a you know, sniper, for lack of a better word, to come in and work on a proposal, then parachute out. Parachute in, work on a proposal, parachute out. So part of what I do that I believe is very different from, let's say, proposal, other proposal consultants who are out there who are snipers to come, hired to come in to, come, to try to pick off one particular deal, or somebody that does training on how to write winning proposals, or somebody who's a marketing guru who's worked on a lot of proposals but doesn't really maybe have the, the depth of thinking about how to create an argument that resonates with the decision makers. Or they tend to focus more on, let's say, the, the proposal production side of it and then less, you know, really less about the content and the argument and structure. And so I'm, I'm a little bit of each one of those, but not that's not it. And Part of also, I think, what makes me different is I have, from my career at Accenture, a background in organizational change management. So I was working with extremely large clients and trying to figure out how to adopt changes to new processes and systems or implementing new HR processes and making sure that those stick, that people knew what they were supposed to do, why it was important, and that they were able to achieve the objectives of those programs. Because I have that experience, I kind of know what works and what doesn't work if you're trying to get people to learn something new, apply it, and sustain it. And it's, it's an unusual skill set that very few people in the space would have. That's really, really good. And I guess one of the questions that comes to my mind then with, you know, with the skill set being something that's, you know, that you've been able to develop and hone just through the, through the unique experiences that you had, what do you say to the engineer, the civil engineer who's listening to this this episode, who's thinking, well, you know, that that's all good, but I don't have these, you know, these special types of experiences. And proposal work probably isn't something that I'm ever going to be really good at because my writing skills are weak, or you know, I haven't been in in one particular industry or another. How good of a writer does does this person need to be? And is there a way that they can develop their proposal writing skills, even if this is something that they've not done before in the past? That's a great question. I think, you know, part of the answer to any of uh, a good consultant answer is usually, well, you know, it depends, <laughs> which nobody ever likes that answer, right? Nobody wants to hear that the answer they're getting ready to hear follows. It depends. I think for people who haven't done a lot of proposal writing or, or just are periodic proposal writers, they're referred to as seller-doers or doer-sellers or they're technical contributors to a proposal that an account manager or a project manager is really responsible for. So they have a bit role in it. I think it depends on two different things. One is, do you have leverage? So do you have somebody that's a proofreader or a copy editor who's going to strengthen your writing once you put together your bits of the proposal? 
A lot of firms don't have that. I work with a lot of firms with between 50 and 250 people. If you get over, you know, maybe 100, 150 people, they'll have some dedicated staff who may go beyond just proposal production, but may also have some good writing and editing skills. If you have a professional like that on your team, I think it's important to make sure that when they redline your document or have track changes on on Word document that you may have contributed to, and they propose their changes, and then you go, maybe you take the last pass of accept or reject their changes to make sure that they didn't change the content or context in any way. When the proposal's over, I, I think one mistake that most people make is they don't go back and spend time with the person who is the proofreader or editor and say, okay, why did you suggest this? Or, you know, I had a sentence that was five lines long. I see that you broke that up into shorter sentences, help me think through how to do that next time so I can do it on my own. It makes your job easier. So some of that could be learning on the job, but the easiest thing for, for me that I suggest to people is having a copy of Strunk and White's Elements of Style, which has really short chapters in it on, on grammar, writing with clarity, punctuation. I sometimes hate to, to admit this, but um, that's, I keep that book in my reading room if you know what I mean by reading room. Depending on the amount of time that I have, I could read a whole chapter. Or I might just be able to read a page or two that's a good refresher. And I write every day. And I forget things, so I learned something new by picking that up. And I don't believe that you have to have 20 books on your shelf to make you a better writer. I think if you pick one that's strong, and you, most people had to read that one in college. If they had to learn to write argumentative writing, persuasive writing, which most of us had to do for semester freshman year, then, then you may even be familiar with it and still have it. That's one way to do it. That's a good input. I'll, I'll make sure that we have a, a link to that book in the uh, show notes. You have to be honest here and expose that I don't even have a copy of that one. So this is going to be, that, that's going to be a book that I will likely reach out and put my hands on in the hard copy version as opposed to Kindle for, for once. One point that that Jim mentioned here that I just want to I want to touch on and and that is going back to to the person or a person who may go through your proposal and, and make edits to it so that you have an understanding of why they did that and I think that this also can be applied to any any writing you're doing whether it's for proposals or on proposals or other types of reports that you may be putting together if you have somebody else that looks at it and they make edits to it as we all go through our growth and growing and learning and writing, it's just like anything else with leadership or even our technical engineering skills. If there's changes that are made, it's it can be very beneficial and enlightening to ask questions and understand why the changes were suggested or were made so that you can improve your skills and improve your ability to be able to, to be better the next time and to continuously learn. So Jim, I think that was a, that was a huge, uh, huge point to hit. So beyond books, and, and of course there's your book, and then this that we just mentioned about the elements of styles, are there some other books out there that, that someone might want to consider if they're trying to kind of build their library about proposal writing or to build their, their self-training for proposal writing? Is there any other books that you would recommend that they, they reach out and put their hands on? Well, other than mine, of course, Chris, I think <laughs> that one that is – one of the simplest and most clear books that I keep on my shelf, and this is one I haven't had to reread in a, in a long time, 
is uh, Tom Sant's book, S-A-N-T. And let me give you another book on writing. If you wanted to read a second book on how to write clearly and write for business, there's a book called On Writing Well by William Zinsser, Z-I-N-S-S-E-R. And I am having trouble finding the title of this other book by Tom Sant. So maybe I'll just put it this way. There's a book on proposal writing by Tom Sant that is one of my Bibles for proposal writing. I've read it so many times I haven't had to read it lately. And I will give you, when we finish this call, I will give you the title and make sure that you make it available to people on your website. Okay, brilliant. I appreciate that. That'll be great. Because a lot of the people that I speak with, a lot of the engineers I speak with, proposal writing and business development is not something that they're well steeped in. It, it certainly wasn't what they went to school for. And, and oftentimes as they start off in their, in their engineering career, it's not what they are uh, expected to be doing. You know, it's not what they expected to do. And oftentimes then their initial jobs they're being hired into, it's not what they're expected to do either. But it becomes at some point for some of the engin- you know, some engineers, they're either forced into having to do business development or write proposals, or they make a decision career-wise, I want to expand my portfolio of skills, I want to expand my ability to be able to have more uh, responsibility. Uh, perhaps they want to move into doing you know, to actually running or uh, or ultimately owning their own firm or doing freelance work. And I think at that point, these skills become exceedingly important in their ability to be successful. So uh, we'll make sure that we have all the all the links to these books in the show notes so you can reach out there and, and touch those. So I want to move off of talking about other people's books, Jim, and, and get back to yours. You know, in your book, you talk about overconfidence and how that's going to lead someone or a firm to not win any work at all because of, of something that you named the betterness trap. What is this betterness trap and, and how can someone avoid getting caught in it? Great question. You know, qualify a little bit. Uh, if, if I were to have said that they weren't going to win any work, then that might be a little melodramatic. So I don't mean to imply that people won't win work at all because if you do good work and you have existing client relationships, then you know they're going to be, if they want to do work with you on a particular project, they're going to be more forgiving than perhaps somebody you haven't worked as well with. And you know, there's another term before I get to betterness and betterness trap that I use that is the usual suspects. So let's say you have transportation engineering is a great example. You're doing work with a state Department of Transportation, and you've been doing work with them for years or decades. They know who you are. You see the your same competitors over and over. You probably went to school with them. You played golf with them, go to church with them, live next door to them, and you hate losing to them. That even makes it worse when you lose a, a project to them. But you know that if you do good work and continue to do work, the kind of the wheel of fortune will spin around and it's going to hit you eventually. What I try to get people to do is make that wheel spin a little bit faster to hit on you, maybe skip over somebody else and so that you're winning 10, 20, 30% more work and writing fewer proposals to do it than you have in the past or that your competitors are going to continue to do if they don't try to sharpen their skills or work, work with somebody like me, frankly. So the, to your question, the betterness trap, there are really two parts to this. And the first is this notion of betterness, which is a term that I coined and the definition of betterness is this. 
It's your belief or your assertion that you're superior to your competitors. So your belief or your assertion that you are superior to your competitors. And I'll give you a couple of examples of how that might show up in an engineering proposal or any kind of business proposal might be to say, you know, we hire the best and the brightest or we are uniquely qualified to do something. And there's a little bit of arrogance in there. And whether or not you believe that you're actually better, and a lot of clients do, we tend to overplace ourselves relative to other folks in lots of different categories, not just in business. Uh, you assert it even if you don't believe it because you think that that's the way to convince your client that you are better and the best person for a particular job. Here are a couple of examples that illustrate this notion of betterness. Uh, researchers surveyed about 800,000 high school students who were taking the SAT. So these were rising seniors or seniors in high school taking their SATs and they asked those 800,000 students, rate yourself and your ability relative to your peers, other students, in terms of getting along with other people. Well, about 70% of folks said that they were in the top 25%. And the numbers kept getting better and better. 99% of people said that they were better than average, better than most, of, most other students. And a lot of people go, okay, well, Jim, you know, those are high school students. They're brash, self-centered. Of course they think that way. Well, how would that play out with adults? Well, when they surveyed drivers in the United States, 93% of U.S. drivers say that they're better than the average driver. 94% of college professors say that they're doing a better job than their colleagues. And 81%, 81% of Greek men think they're sexy. <laughs> so, and most men think that they're good looking, right? So there are just dozens of examples, and all of those are kind of cutesy examples, but there's a business example that's actually frightening because it's so compelling. This was a survey by Bain & Company, one of the global management consulting firms, and they surveyed a cross-section of companies and industries and in sizes and geography. And they asked the executives at these companies this question, do you offer a better value proposition than your competitors do? And Chris, what, I know you've read the book. Do you remember what percent of companies said that they do have a better value proposition than their competitors? Put you on the spot here. Yeah, you are putting me on the spot on that one. I I, I don't remember the figure, but I, I'm going to go you, on. A, I'm going to go on a limb and, and guess that it's above fifty percent. Yeah, you know the eighty twenty rule. So eighty percent of eighty percent of executives said that they offer a better value proposition. They then asked for a list of their customers or clients, and they went interviewed them, and they asked them the same question: Does your provider, your consultant, provide? a superior value proposition than their competitors, you know, what percent agreed with them? It was uh, 9%. <laughs> wow. So, so this egocentric bias that people have, and, and I've read this in other, uh, other books that I've read, and I'm, actually I, I sat through a, a project management podcast, or podcast, it was a webinar, just yesterday evening that was talking about, about biases in cognitive thought and so this egocentric bias came up, which was touched on some of the same type of statistics you were just talking about. So it, it's obvious that it's very easy for all of us to fall into this, this trap of overconfidence. 
you know, beyond just some of the, you know, some of the examples that you shared as far as wording in, in, uh, in proposals, what are a couple of checks that somebody can do to make sure that they're not, that they purposely aren't stepping into this trap themselves? Is there something they can do that's going to help them think about how to avoid getting into this overconfidence uh, issue? Well, you know, the overconfidence shows up in a couple of different ways. So one way that overconfidence shows up is in bad pursuits. So if you have a particular piece of work that you want to go after and you overestimate yourself relative to your competitors, let's say you know, you've gotten to know them, you think they like you, you seem to understand the work, but you haven't done a lot of legwork to be prepared for the proposal for that particular project, and you think, well, you know, we're as, we're as qualified as anybody else, so we might as well submit the proposal. Well, there's probably somebody out there that already has a deeper relationship. If, if yours is light, kind of have a light relationship with the client understanding of the project. So there's a chance you're, it's already been awarded in the decision makers' minds and you're now spending money and effort because you believe that you're as qualified or better qualified than anybody else. We tend to know ourselves better, so you may have come across this as you were reading some of this without getting too much into the psychology, but there's, there's a self-preservation element in it because you know, we have to have confidence in ourselves. It's important for our survival. So that's a part of it, but we also know ourselves better than we know our competitors. So the, the more we know about ourselves and the less we know about somebody else, then the more likely we are, we are to underestimate them. Whether we're overconfident or not, we overplace ourselves relative to them because we know less about them. So that's just one part of it. So it would be showing up in kind of the might as well pursue. The other is, well, this is ours to lose. We think we're so superior and the judges are going to be able to tell that this is ours to lose. We're going to win this job. And very often you do, you're right. But very often that's a trap. And this was your, the other part of the first question you asked me, which is the betterness trap. And the betterness trap is your belief that decision makers will recognize your betterness. So if you have this uh, mindset that you're better or that you can assert your betterness and they'll be able to see it, that's a trap because typically that's not going to come up in your proposals. It would have already been established during the business development process before an RFP solicitation came out for that particular project. And that's the only place where you can really, really position yourself and, and hopefully help them understand that you are the best firm for the job. But if you're waiting to write the proposal to do that, then it's too late, very likely too late. That's a very good point. And what comes to my mind as I, you know, as I think through other ways that firm or an individual can go about making sure that they check themselves on overconfidence. And that is, you know, again, you know, Jim brought up going after work that maybe isn't in, in your wheelhouse or it isn't something that you're overly familiar with and maybe working with clients that you're not overly familiar with either. You know, there's obviously a, an opportunity cost every time that you put energy into putting a proposal together. And so it's really sitting down and thinking through what your strategy is, what are you truly trying to go after and why? And that can also help you work through this overconfidence issue. I want to touch on something else that you discussed in the book because we you just brought it up uh, in this last segment. We were talking about the judges 
And, and in the book, you discuss proposal judging and how it's nearly impossible for someone on a panel to make distinctions between firms that are nearly identical. And, and in the AE industry, you know, there's thousands of firms. I think you know, I did a search once and came came across a, a statistic that says you know that there's well over 8,500 civil engineering firms in the United States. So there's a lot of civil engineers that are out there, a lot of civil engineering firms, a lot of AE firms that are out there. And many of them have the, you know, they're providing the exact same services. There's going to be distinctions are going to be made in the, you know, from things beyond just what it is that they do. So what's going through the minds of the judges and how can someone better craft their proposal to get it noticed and actually read by the judges? I think that there, you know, as with anything, there are a couple of different things that you can do. One is to lay the groundwork for your understanding of what their needs are and be able to demonstrate that during the business development process and test your strengths and weaknesses and test your ideas out on them so that you're not guessing when you're writing the proposal. Not only does it help you write a better proposal, it helps you write it faster and with more confidence. And I think that that, that is one mistake that that a lot of people make is is not testing out their ideas or being scared to test out a weakness with a, a client before writing the proposal. And I can give you an example of this is that I had a client who lost a project because they proposed a teaming partner to do a portion of the work. Let's just say it was land survey. And instead of proposing their own people who happened to live across the border of this state in an adjacent state, and they were concerned that those folks, or that they may be dinked because some of the, a lot of the staffing for this project was going to be done from another office out of state. When they found out that they lost and they debriefed the proposal with a the client, they said, you know, okay, so what happened? We kind of thought we were teed up and this was ours to lose and we lost. So why was that? And the client said, well, we expected to see your guys to do the land survey, but you teamed with another firm. Why'd you do that? We would have hired you if you had just had your guys on the project. And he said, well, we were worried that they were coming across the border, you know, that they were encroachers, even though they're on our team. And the client said, no, I've worked with those guys. That's who I wanted on this team. They knew the area because they worked here before, before you opened the new office across the border and they all departed. So all my client had to do was ask that question when they were meeting with them before the RFP came out, which is, hey, you know, we're thinking about using our land survey folks across the state line to do work for you in the future. Is that okay? Or, you know, is there a problem with that in your mind? And they would have had an answer for that instead of guessing and guessing wrong. They would have known what the client was really looking for. That's important. Really important. Another question that people fail to ask during that process that can help you with your proposal is, what would get in the way of hiring us? What would get in the way of hiring me? Because then you can either, number one, get some good information from them and be able to address it right there in that meeting or before the RFP comes out, and then reinforce it in your proposal, maybe even as a concession. Say, look, you know, we know that our folks are across the state line, but they're still part of our team, and that takes friction out of doing projects because we're all one team, and they know the area. We just have to open an office across the state line. So there are a couple of different ways to mitigate that kind of problem. Now, I know this sounds like 
not proposal 101, but business development proposal writing, you know, 300. It's not really. It's just asking smart questions. And then if you're worried about something for some reason, just ask. You don't have to guess. You don't have to be a salesperson reading somebody else's mind. Just ask the question. I don't think we all have. I don't have all the answers. My, I'm not sure what my wife always wants from me. So I ask instead of guessing, guessing wrong or not doing anything at all. That's a reminder. I probably don't do that enough. And <laughs> remember to do that today. Ask for what she needs from me. Yeah. Well, and that, and that's such a great point, Jim, because it's you know though we're talking about proposals. In writing winning proposals, this is you know the proposal is submission of the proposal is one element in a in a process that uh, this business development process it's going to occur after market research has been done. You've developed different pipelines, you've identified opportunities, and you really you hit on the important piece, which is the communications element. And uh, you know not only not only are there often communications issues internal to a firm and just between people, but Obviously, if you're working with a client or a potential client, there could be concerns. You know, you may have concerns for for one reason or another about even asking these types of questions. I mean, obviously, the response they can always give you is is no response and say no or not provide an answer. But oftentimes, and this is from my own experiences, and, and Jay, maybe the same for you. But oftentimes, if you ask a question, you're going to get an answer. You know, people are just going to generally want to help figure these things out. And so it can save you a lot of time on the back end. You know, you just reminded me of kind of the second part, the second advantage of doing that is people like to be asked for their help or advice. So you can always even phrase it that way and say, I'd like to ask your advice on something. I'd like to ask for your help on something. So that's being humble and without being hat in hand and asking them for that. It actually makes them create an emotional commitment to you. And this is I don't think of it as a sales technique. It's just things we do and we may do in other areas of our life and we don't think to, to do them in business. And when, you know, asking directly, I want to get your advice, but also to ask for a referral. We do this in life all the time. Hey, you know, can, I'm interested in being on a board of the local not-for-profit. Uh, would you make a recommendation for me? But just by asking somebody for a referral or recommendation, they're making an emotional commitment to you. And I'm getting ready to help a client win a piece of work, and I probably won't even touch the proposal. We're going to win the piece of work because I sat down with him for an hour and mapped out a conversation that he's known for almost his whole life. It's a friend of his father's, and he is in a startup office and is just not getting traction and was passed over by this prospective client a few, maybe last year, was passed over for somebody that was more familiar to the client in terms of having to work, work with them recently. Well, some of that work didn't go well. They're recompeting one of those projects and adding a couple of other projects. So before those are advertised, I had him schedule some time to go sit in his office and say, look, you know, we've worked together before. It's been a long time. I'm interested in meeting the person like you in the next district or next county over, will you make that introduction for me? And the guy said, of course, I'll make that introduction for you. Um, Why don't we all go to lunch together? Well, by doing that, he's reinforcing an emotional connection to you just because you asked for his help. But he also said, look, you know, I'm going to vouch for you and say that you've done good work in the past and that I would trust you to do work. So when this proposal comes out, we write write that proposal, he, has, he needs to be consistent 
with what he said earlier, months earlier, which is, yes, I believe in you enough to make a recommendation, and here's what I liked about working with you, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. That's going to be in his brain at the time that he's making that decision a few months from now when the proposal comes out. I'm sure of it. Certainly. So the key takeaway from this section is ask questions and don't feel that, that you're not in a position to be able to ask the question. You're better off for having asked it and received the answer than to guess and try to determine through overconfidence perhaps or through other misperceptions what you think the right answer is. Just go ahead and ask the question. And Chris, there's a second part to that, which is after you've asked the question, shut up. (laughs) Very good point. And what happens in that space, and even if you have to count to 10, is the other person thinking, or maybe you caught them off guard, they need a little bit of time to process it. It's real easy to jump in, but if if you stop and make it about them, then that's going to go a long way to developing a great relationship with them. I have somebody that's come over to private practice after having retired from the state after 20 years. This is a highway engineer. I use a lot of highway engineering examples. But he's coming over from state government, and he'd been on selection committees a lot over the last five years or so with a little break in between um, before, right before his retirement because uh, just from ethics reason, he has to not have been on selection committees for a while before retiring. And he said, the worst thing that, in my experience, was when people wanted to show up and take me to lunch and just kind of shoot the bull and then start to tell me all about them and what they've been doing and really making a sales pitch and not giving me a chance to talk about what I'm worried about, you know, what I'm thinking about, what I'm excited about. And he said, the people that came in and said, you know, hey, tell me about the projects you have coming up. And then they shut up and let him talk. And those are the people that had deeper relationships with him because they shut up and listened and they made it about him instead of coming in and trying to position themselves for the work. And they didn't even have to do a little commercial for themselves. Maybe they drew a parallel to another project that had potholes that he could avoid. So by giving him advice on you know ways to be successful, they're building a relationship with that person. And that's going to pay off when it's time for them to make the decision. Absolutely. Absolutely. You don't have to be a used car salesman to be a salesperson. You just be the consultant that you are when you go listen to, say, the public working on a project or a client in the middle of a project. It's just asking good questions and then giving people space to answer. Like you're doing today. I appreciate that. Well, well, thanks, Jim. I, I appreciate the feedback on that as well. <laughs> well, hey, I want to I want to touch on another section of the, of the book because I think that this is a really important piece of, within the book. You go into a lot of detail on it, and it has to do about the three S's of a winning proposal. So, can you unpack what these three S's are for us? Yeah, and you know the the, the three S's. This is this is not new technology, and there are different names for it. It goes back thousands of years too. Um, Aristotle and Demosthenes and any of a number of other philosophers who wrote about persuasion. Actually, it's probably mostly oral history back then and not a lot of written. But the three S's to me are substance, structure, and style. And if you do a good job with your substance, then the structure pretty much takes care of itself. And once engineers start to understand what I mean by substance, they kind of light up and they go, I can do that. 
you know, this is not something that's beyond my capability as a communicator because it's logical and I like logic. And as I alluded to earlier in freshman composition in college, which probably everybody had to take or place out of because it taught you how to write an argument, how to structure an argument and be persuasive, which is so important to your academic career. This element of substance is in there and it's in you and you've done it and you've just kind of forgotten that you know how to do it. Because between school and actually then sitting down and having to write a proposal or persuade somebody at a public meeting or in a client meeting to do something, we kind of forget about what we learned about years ago and what those good practices are. So they may be rusty, but they're in there rattling around somewhere. So substance to me is really the content of your argument. And there are lots of different elements that could fit in there, but I focus on three. I try to keep this book simple. It's a 50-page ebook, which is what American Council of Engineering Companies asked for. I think it's about 70 pages in print. But if you answer these three questions in your proposal, you're going to cover the substance that you need to make the argument, the sales argument. Forget the technical parts of the proposal. They're showing your qualifications and demonstrating that you understand the technical solution that they're asking for. So the three questions are these, why now? What do they really want and why you? And by why now, by asking that question, making sure you understand that question means that you understand the ultimate aim or goal or outcomes that the client wants to create. And that could be to get a new development constructed so that you can get retailers in and start to make money. And so the developer starts to recoup their investment. It could be um, safety on highways. With, you know, in Kentucky, we had a few years ago a fiery bus crash that claimed lots of lives of children. And it immediately created urgency for that particular project. And so if you, even if it's just a sentence or two, if you validate the reason for doing this project now as opposed to something else, because people make decisions about how to spend their dollars, this one took priority over something else. It's important to touch on that. And there are a couple of reasons for that. One, it shows that you understand what they're trying to do and you're committed to their, their goals. But number two, it validates them. It validates that what the decision makers are doing is important in some way. And that's particularly important in, if your clients are government employees because it's very often when they're under siege, either by the public or, you know, and they feel underpaid and overworked doing, doing more with less, it helps to revalidate why being an engineer or being in public service is important. Or if it's commercial, then why what they're trying to do to build wealth and help other people make money and provide for their families, and then you know that's important to them too. So if you just touch on that real quickly, that you understand why they're doing this now, it opens them up to be receptive to the rest of what you have to say. Second question is, what do they really want? And here there are two things. There's what they're stating that they want, which are the technical objectives for the project. But then second is more important are the unspoken the unstated needs that they have, which might just be validation. Maybe the easiest way to put this is people really only want two things. They want to avoid something or they want to attain something. So things that people want to avoid are extra work, wasted effort, being criticized, failing. So people want to avoid those things. And then on the positive side, what do people want to gain? You know, Maybe they want to gain wealth and be able to provide for their families. Maybe they just want a pat on the back an add-a-boy or an add-a-girl, or they want to leave a legacy 
So if you start to really understand what people want out of the project, then there are good questions that you can ask. I won't go through those here. There's some in the book. But there's some questions you can ask to uncover what those buyer values really are that are unstated. And if you have a good relationship with them, you can find out, you can ask, and know how important a particular project is. A lot of times people say, look, if I deliver this successfully, I know I'm in line for a promotion. If I fail, it's not going to happen. So first question, why now? Second question, what do they really want? Third question, why you? And it's not just enough to answer the why you in terms of what your advantages or strengths are and how they might be stronger than your competitors. It's to translate that into those strengths into a benefit or a, an advantage for them to hire you. And that's the thing, that's the step that a lot of people miss is translating the benefit or the strength, uh, which might just be that, hey, we're local. Well, we're local, what does that mean? Well, it means responsiveness. Okay, well, what does that mean? That means when your schedule all of a sudden opens up and you need to meet, we can drive over there in seven minutes. We're not having to get on a plane. You know, and if you need us face-to-face, we're not just doing it by conference call. So our ability to adapt to your busy schedule is something that the client may really want instead of just saying we're local and hope that they make the connection between your strength and what it means for them. It's, it's too big of a gap, so you want to close that gap. You don't want to imply it. You don't want them to infer it. And the distinction between those two words is in strunk and white. I'm sure of it. <laughs> <laughs> then you say it. So that's the substance part of the structure is really in what order do you present your argument. And if you answer those three substance questions, you've nailed the structure. Why now? What do they really want? And then why you? Make sure that the first two are almost wholly couched in the client's terms and you don't even have to have anything about you in either one of those answers. And the third one you do because it's about you, but you're still turning it into a benefit for the client instead of just saying, me, 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 hire me. We're the best fit for the job. We're uniquely qualified. So structure kind of takes care of itself. I think the only other thing to say about structure is you, in a written document, you don't want to save your best ideas for last because people are less likely to finish <laughs> finish what you've written or if they skim, they may not get to what's last. You want to put that information early in the, in the proposal. So that's one other tip to do, uh, to do with structure. And then in terms of style, to me, this is a sticky point and kind of a pet peeve of mine is that so many people who hear me speak on proposal writing want to hear about flash, sizzle, how to make proposals look beautiful and professional and so it's all the aesthetic elements of, of trying to wow somebody or you know, show, demonstrate that they're much more professional because they're willing to commit the time and to make something look good. For me, it's not really about that. It's about uncluttering your ideas. So if you're using a really small typeface and you have quarter-inch margins to try to cram as many words as you can on a page, your style is actually interfering with your ability to get your message across. And if you're writing a lot of text and not using visuals and graphs, photographs to represent your ideas, then you're missing an opportunity to make it easier, easy for people to grasp your message. And there's a little tip in there too, which is if you have an image on a page, to put a two or three sentence caption under it because people are more likely to look at the pictures and read the captions and remember the captions than they are to read anything else in your proposal. So that's 
kind of an element or a tactic and style that you would hope your marketing people would know. And if they don't, that means they're not studying and doing their jobs to be better at, at their profession. If they haven't read about uh, read books by David Ogilvy on advertising, which talks in detail about tested methods to make sure that people read your content and what gets in the way of that. So that's what I mean by style. And in a in a presentation, it might mean you know having text laden slides that are interfering with your ability to connect with people in the audience because your your style is has made it about the slides instead of about you. So you're you're letting the slides get in the way of your message and your relationship with the client in the room when you're doing a sales presentation, an interview. So those are the three elements. Substance, which is the core content of your arguments, uh, structure. And if you answer those questions in the right order, structure pretty much takes care of itself. And then third is style, which to me is getting rid of. <laughs> you may remember these phrases in the book, um, the vomit twins. I call it verbal and visual vomit. So verbal vomit is the bad writing that you've already asked me about. That there are some good techniques to overcome poor writing. And then the visual elements is just clutter, making it hard for people to pick out your ideas. We're trying to get too fancy. Keep it simple. Jim, I, I like that. And thank you much for uh, for unpacking all that. And, and as you mentioned, you know, within the book, there's a lot more... Uh, you go into a lot more detail on on each one of these. I, I think that you know the, the key takeaway uh, for everyone off of this is you know your your substance doesn't have to you know it doesn't have to be an encyclopedia. You just have to be able to really understand what the uh, you know what the issue is and to be able to articulate it clearly. And then the style, you know, I agree with you know with Jim entirely. Is uh, more doesn't equal better. And just because there's a lot more information and you can provide. Lots and lots of details and, and, and uh, graphs and pretty pictures. If there isn't substance behind it, it doesn't matter how stylish it looks. So really having, having that substance piece tightened up, and I like the fact that, that you know, that's the first one of the three. Style doesn't come into it until, until the end. I think is, is well form is form function. I, I use that as my mantra, and so many times in proposal development, people want to defer to the marketing folks because they you know want them, want them to make them look good. I hear that all the time. Well, my, the, I'm going to write it, but the marketing people are going to make me look good. And I think there's too much emphasis on that. And then you put pressure on the marketing people to do something fancy instead of keeping it simple. It ties back to something you asked me earlier that didn't quite answer the question, which was judges finding it almost impossible to make distinctions between firms that are really good choices. So when, you have, when you're faced with really good choices, it is difficult, and it's your fault if they choose somebody else because you didn't make it easy for them to decide. You know, this is a mature industry. Civil engineering is very mature. Unless you're a specialist in, in a new hot area, I don't know, green roof design, which I've seen a couple of times popping up as something that's new and exciting. So unless you're a specialist like that, you're in a very mature business competing against people that do very much the same thing. So the places where you can stand out are in the business development process when you ask smart questions and shut up and then ask, try to remove barriers that would keep them from hiring you. But then in your proposal, by making it clear, connecting back to... Uh, things that you already talked about during the proposal or during the business development stage, you're going to be memorable. And being memorable is more important than trying to assert your betterness. And being memorable, to me, is almost nothing about flash or sizzle. 
because people will see that as gimmickry, like putting lipstick on a pig, for lack of a better phrase. So you have to have the substance. Definitely. So I've got one more one more question before we uh, before we move into the uh, to the last part of, of today's episode for you, Jim, and that is. You're a firm. This firm has gone through all, you know, a lot of effort to put together a good proposal. They've focused on their substance. The structure was there. The style was such that they were very clear, very direct. But they don't win the job. And obviously, again, because it's such a uh, such a mature market, there's a lot of a lot of good, high quality civil engineering firms that are out there. So not everyone's going to win win every job that's out there. If you find that you don't win the job. Are there th- are there things that, that a firm should do once they've gotten into that position? And if so, what what are those things that they should do to to uh, to try to decipher what it was that that led them to not win that job? Chris, this is a good question, a tricky one, and I'm not usually there for these debriefs, conducting a debrief with the client. And that doesn't have to be a formal meeting where you go for an hour and try to understand why you didn't win a particular piece of work. It could, be the, it could be in the phone call when they call and say, you know, this was a really tough decision, but we decided for this particular project to go with another firm. We thought they were a little bit more qualified, a better fit for this one. So instead of asking a close-ended question like, can you tell me what we didn't do or did do, is to say, what could we do differently next time to make sure that we completely understand your needs? And also, if we understand your needs and we realize we're not the best fit to save you the time of reading our proposal and the time for us to prepare it, because that's wasteful and we don't want to waste time. So what could we do differently as part of the process and not make it about the proposal itself, because it's not usually about the proposal. Sometimes is. But there's something very often that happened before that in the, in the business development process. So if you're not doing a debrief or asking a couple of questions, that's the first step. And most firms that I work with say that they do. 80% say that they do. And a lot of clients are reluctant or can't talk about it. So the, the next best thing to do is in working with them on your next opportunity is to, as part of that process, ask those questions that we talked about earlier. You know, what are the barriers to hiring us? And then, you know, what will success mean for you for this project? You know, and some of those other questions are going to improve that process. And you may not have that bad phone call the next time around. That's brilliant. And and again, the the takeaway from from all this is being willing and being open to asking these questions and, and trying to make them open-ended questions so that you're able to get into a dialogue as opposed to a, a one-way conversation. So so I like I like that a lot, Jim, about, about making sure that those questions that you ask are open-ended and then also being somewhat optimistic and looking forward to that next opportunity and being able to engage with a, with a potential client to make sure that you fully understand their requirements fact that, that this is about them and, and not necessarily about you. So that, that's all great. Well, Jim, I've got one last question to ask you, and it's one that I ask all the shows that, that I have the opportunity to interview on the show. And it's really, it's, it's actually a, a two-part question. You can pick and choose. Um, and that's, if, if there's one thing that you would have done differently in your career, if you could go back, what would it be and why? Or what's one of the best decisions that you made in your career and why? 
So what is one thing that I would have done differently in my career? You know, it's interesting. The one regret that I have had over the course of my career was to not go back to business school at some point early in my career and study marketing because I, uh, my career started out as a software engineer working for Accenture, as you mentioned at the open of the show, doing process reengineering and designing and implementing software solutions for clients. And I was, you know, a B player, and I'm probably giving myself too much credit, you know, a B minus player in that particular business. But every time, let's say, I was thinking about leaving, the economy would contract, and I'd be like, hey, I'm lucky to have a job. They're laying off people around me, and they're keeping me, probably because I'm a B minus and not a C plus. I'm, boy, I'm, I'm relieved. I'm going to stay. And I was never great at what I was doing, and I, I wasn't excited to get up and go to work every day. And I spent 11 years doing that within a major corporation. And if at one of those points when I recognized that the recession was coming, that's a great time to go back to school because then by the time you get out of business school in a couple of years, maybe you're back on the rebound and people are hiring again. It may be a little bit tough, but you've made that that shift. Now, if I had done that, though, I wouldn't know all the stuff that I know today. I probably wouldn't have been a failed software entrepreneur, and I wouldn't have continued to work with organizations understanding how you really motivate people to change, build new knowledge and skills, and improve processes and motivation so that you radically transform, let's say, your business development processes, which is what I'm helping AE firms do today, which is create that sustainable year-over-year improvement where you're just crushing the competition. You know, I have a client that went from about a 20-25% win ratio up to, it went above 70 at one point. We're hovering in the high 60s, low 70s. And if I hadn't made those mistakes, I wouldn't have learned all the things that I know that are rolling into my career right now. So I don't know if you ever saw the movie City Flickers, they ask, uh, Billy Crystal asked the, one of the other characters, you know, what was your best day in life? And he said it was the day his father walked out on his mother and he had to become the man of the family. And he says, well, what was your worst day? And he said, same day. So two sides to the, to the same coin by some of the mistakes that I made in my career have built the skills that I have that make me unique, that I would be willing to say nobody else has a kind of skill set in, in the architect and engineering, business development, proposal writing space that I live in. And um, I'm kind of proud of that. Sometimes the mistakes work out. Well, Jim, I, I appreciate the fact that you took the, you know, that you took the initiative and made made what maybe didn't look like opportunities into opportunities and that led you to where you were and where you are in your career right now and your ability to to write the book and to share that information with everyone and to be able to come on this show. So I, I really thank you for, for coming on today and joining me and, and sharing some of your knowledge with all of our listeners. Again, everyone who's listening to the podcast, you'll be able to get links to all the books that Jim and I touched on today in this show. We've got some websites that you can get access to. Jim shared a, a, a code that will uh, provide you with a, with a discount uh, for the book. That'll be in the show notes as well. You can tap into that. And you can find all of that information at civilengineeringpodcast.com. So again, Jim, thank you very much for coming on the show. And thank you very much for having me, Chris. I do want to say that I've discovered the title of the book that escaped me earlier. And the title is 
persuasive business proposals, writing to win more customers, clients, and contracts. So persuasive business proposals by Tom Sant, S-A-N-T. Easy read, has all the fundamentals there. Even though the examples are not all engineering examples, they are very applicable. And I highly recommend that, that book. It's one of the first ones I read, and it's the one I refer back to most often. So thank you so much for thinking that this would be a worthy topic for your audience today. It was, it was a lot of fun. I've enjoyed getting to know you along the way. Jim, likewise. And, and again, everyone, we'll, uh, we'll have the link to the uh, Sans book and all these other ones over at civilengineeringpodcast.com. And until next time, I wish you all the best in your civil engineering endeavors. Thank you for listening to the Civil Engineering Podcast. Be sure to visit civilengineeringpodcast.com where you can listen to past episodes and also submit your project to be featured on the show. We also invite you to visit our main website at engineeringcareercoach.com and download a free three-part video series created specifically for engineers to help you best utilize LinkedIn for networking, improve your communication and speaking skills, and also help to develop your leadership abilities. Now is the time to engineer your own success.